It's Left of Baseball with Adrian Burgos, Craig Calcaterra, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Shakia Taylor is an avid baseball historian, freelance writer. Her main interests have been writing about the Negro Leagues, about women in baseball, and provides us a, a wonderful perspective on looking at America's game through the lens of an African-American woman. So we are excited to have her. She, her writing has appeared in SB Nation, Hardball Times, MLB.com, Baseball Prospectus, and we love to welcome you, Shakir, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here with you all. So one of the questions we ask all our guests is, could you share with us your baseball journey as a fan and even more so than as a writer? Absolutely. Um, my baseball journey is a little interesting. It kind of weaves in and out. Um, as a young, young kid, I wasn't super into it. But um, in 1993, my family moved to Ohio from North Carolina and it was a good entry point into friendships as a young person when everyone in your you know neighborhood is rooting for the same team. Um, so that's kind of how it started. And I, admittedly, it also was a good way to talk to boys. Like, uh, you know, not too many women admit that, but I will. Like, it's it's a it was a good way to be friends with boys and hang out with boys. Um, and then college came, right? And I moved to Chicago, went to Loyola University, Chicago. And the Cubs were just not that far away, a couple train stops away. Um, and I started really, you know, getting into going and and ultimately started writing about it one day when I was unemployed and spending all of my money going to games anyway, because you get burnt out applying for jobs. <laughs> So it's like, I'm going to entertain myself. And that's how I really got into it. I lost my job and then baseball became the center of my world. And you offer a very unique perspective by bringing the framework of your, your life experience, your background as African-American, and really helping us to rethink the history of baseball and what's going on now. To me, one of the latest ways you did that was with that Marcus Stroman piece that you wrote about what inspired you to talk about the do rag and and like even get into the numbers. Well, it's funny, right? Like nobody wears do rags except black and brown people. And so there's a lot of cultural misunderstanding out there and do rags for some reason had a negative connotation for people who it's not a part of their culture. And while I didn't write it to dispel any sort of, you know, negative things, I thought it was fun. I will be honest. I was watching a game and I'm like, oh, Stroh's rocking the do-rag consistently. And I just started paying attention to it. I noticed like he changed colors. And I mean, he was having a great season this year, despite the Mets being the Mets. But, you know, he was definitely a standout guy. And I just thought it was fun, honestly. It started from a place of fun. Um, if any, you know, one reads the piece, they'll notice. I really don't spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the racial undertones of comments made on the piece because I just thought it was let's let let's let's focus on the positive here. Let's give you the black perspective, so to speak. You know, I don't speak for all black people, but I think most of us thought it was really cool. And so that was just the basis of that. I think what happens is like. Sometimes people take the fun out of it, 
we take it too seriously. I'm guilty of that myself sometimes. So that do-rag piece was like, okay, let's let's have some fun. Because no one actually performs better in a do-rag, but do they? We'll never know, you know? Like, <laughs> like that's that's what I was going for. Like, you you can't tell me I'm wrong. How can you argue it, you know? And what made it awesome is he read it. He saw it. He changed the color of his do-rag. So I'm like, okay, this is making an impact. And then it got recognized, right? Culturally, Clinton Yates shouted me out on, around the horn and people started like following me. And it kind of became like like this like cult thing. I still have people to this day who tweet me, Stroh's wearing the orange. Stroh's on the mound today. What color is he going to wear, you know? And um, someone actually uh, tweeted me because he, I guess, said that he would join the Chicago Cubs if obviously the situation is right. And I jokingly was like, oh, I love to see Stroh in a cubby blue do-rag. And of course, it's like, well, you can do your do-rag data in person. And I'm like, am I going to do this for the rest of his career? Are people going to, you know, be like, hey, shake, Stroh's retiring. Let's get the all-time do-rag stats. <laughs> like, like the, the last unfortunate season in Miami with the teal do-rag is going to screw up all your numbers. <laughs> Those Marlins, man, they screw everything up. <laughs> the Yankees could pick him up for a stretch run and he could have pinstripe do-rag. It would be cool. They would probably ban it. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, don't you find it interesting that do-rags are banned in the NBA, in the NFL, but somehow slip through the cracks with MLB? But the, the genesis of uh, of the whole do-rag thing was an asinine comment. I don't – what was it? Something about Tom Seaver. Can somebody tell – like – I don't remember the announcer, was. but he said that's not <laughs> Tom Seaver never wore a do-rag like that or something like that, exact wording. Yeah, it was Bob Bradley because someone was wearing a do-rag in the game. Bradley, very sarcastically. And look, you know, it's like my racist dad saying, oh, yeah, just like we used to wear back in school. I'm like, of course that's what he was getting at. It was ridiculous. Here's the thing. I'm going to say something unexpected, but like I really didn't have a problem with what he said. Like, I understand it was casual racism, right? Like, but I also think on the scale of like, this is going to bother me, F that guy, it falls under just the F that guy. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, okay, whatever. Like, you said this thing. You can be an idiot if you want to. Now, what did bother you, as you tweeted out, was TA's, uh, Tim Anderson's three-game suspension for the... uh, was that even a brawl where punches thrown uh, between the, uh, the the Tigers and and uh, White Sox? Yeah, he was suspended for was it contact with an umpire? Yeah. And in the video that I saw, I will admit I was not watching the game live. I didn't see that. I didn't see contact. But I also have, you know, I wrote about T.A. being suspended before when, you know, he, I don't want to say he used the N-word because it's a difference in the hard R and the A. You know, there is a giant (laughs) difference. Um, And But he got suspended for using the A. And it really made me think about like suspensions. Who is suspending? Why are they suspending? Why do we have no guidelines for like what is a suspendable offense, right? And, you know, I've seen some people say like there's definitely some disparity in, you know, the players of color and their suspensions versus, you know, white players. 
I don't have any data on that, so I can't really say, but it kind of seems that way. There's also, there's a status thing too, like how long you've been in the league and all that kind of stuff. That The one that struck me when Tim Anderson got suspended was I think just a few weeks before Yadier Molina like basically shoved an umpire out of the way to get at another player and he got like one game and you know I guess if you're a 20-year veteran or whatever you you get more leeway but it's it's completely arbitrary and always has been that's what bothers me why is it arbitrary like you know in the when we watch an NBA game you're like that's a tech right like you know what a tech is like I mean, obviously, NFL, we're like, is that a catch? But for the most part, like, you kind of know the rules. With MLB, it's like, is the um feeling spicy today? <laughs> you know, like... There, there's so much of this that strikes me as strange. It's all, all professional. It's theater, right? This It's the, it's in that form of entertainment. It's something else, but it's also that. And part of this theater is that, I mean, I you know, I disagree with people in the workplace. Actually, I don't because I work alone. But if I did... That doesn't, you know, and, and it escalates to yelling and screaming and getting in each other's faces, which is not typical workplace behavior, right? It's There are very few workplaces in America where they can say, well, if you work for the Cleveland branch of our company, you can have whatever facial hair you want. But if you get transferred to New York, you got to shave, right? I mean, this is, it's, it's both infantilizing, but also preserving this kind of odd fiction where we get to watch these larger than life figures yell at each other, scream at each other, shove each other in a way that... I mean, much of what you see on if that happens on the street, like like there's an assault and people can get convicted, right? It, it's it's a fascinating kind of fiction that that we all in which we all participate. I think being a baseball fan involves a particular level of suspension of disbelief, right? Like, I mean, obviously, I think the hair thing is racist, personally. Like, you know, uh, Andrew McCutcheon having to cut his hair for what? What purpose does that serve? How does it distract from the game? How is it even in the way? It's it's not like baseball is this contact sport where someone's yanking his hair, you know? And then the traditions are violent. Hitting another player for showing you up, that's assault. That's violence. You're hitting someone with a 90 mile an hour pitch against their body where they're not really wearing any sort of protective, you know, they don't wear pads in baseball. It's just a shirt and maybe an undershirt. So you're bruised for probably weeks at a time. Yet that is the thing that people sort of celebrate. Hit them. Get them on the ear hole. Like, what are you saying? Do you realize what you're saying? And these are the same people who are like, you're protesting too loud. Seems like the common denominator in baseball anyway. I think we, we all have a gladiator approach, or not we, but like fans in general have sort of a gladiator feel with all athletes, but they're sort of different depending on the different sport. Whereas in football, it's let's look at these giant people kill each other. In baseball, it seems more geared towards let's see these people be obedient to a certain sort of orthodoxy that puts us back in the 19th century that we like to see. Because like the throwing at someone, that's all about, that's not about the violence. It's about the maintaining of order and the cutting of the hair is the maintaining of an order it's sort of like a military thing almost it's also honor it's also this weird sense of honor you showed me up after a home run what what does that possibly mean right but it's not just order it, it, it's my honor is offended we're up here as gladiators or you know knights in shining armor and you laughed at me and now i'm gonna shoot you except it's with the baseball i mean yeah, like it reflects the values of the fans and baseball fans are a particularly conservative brand of fan, I think. And and baseball fans want the order and football fans want the blood. And 
basketball fans. I don't know. I'm not a big basketball fan, so I don't know. But like, I think it just varies. The, the other thing that struck me as just fascinating because this is the way I would love to see baseball being done and celebrated. Jazz Chisholm and Travis Rogers. You know, Jazz hits a home run, does the Euro step. Next time, you know, you got Travis Rogers strikes him out, does the Euro step. Like, that's game, game is game. Mm-hmm. That's also fun. It's fun. Young people don't want to, you know, watch that violent mess. Like, it's fun. Have some fun. That's why people left the game anyway, because you get upset at someone Euro stepping. And it could possibly be because most guys in MOB probably could not Euro step to save their lives. Like, it is definitely a rhythmless nation. As somebody who definitely who definitely couldn't Euro step, and admittedly, I'm not quite sure what that is, but I'm pretty sure I couldn't do it. Um, there, there is some, I think there is some cause for optimism here, right? I mean, it's not that long ago when a bat flip was was fighting words. Now we see bat flips all the time, and that has become acceptable. So, so I think in some senses, the curve, pardon the pun, is in the right direction. I mean, no, we can't be, shouldn't be hopeless about it. Jose Bautista was like a huge thing just like six years ago, and, and now everybody's flipping. Like if someone got mad over a bat flip right now, the, the controversy wouldn't be, was that bat flip too much? It'd be like, what's wrong with this guy? The, the other thing you brought up, Shakia, that reminded me, and you write on the Negro Leagues and you write about integration. So many of these written and unwritten rules and practices of MLB were created during an era when there were no black players. There were few brown players in the game. And like it, it's, man, it, it's almost, what, next year, 75 years since 47? And to think like we're still dealing with some of these ideas of the written rules and the unwritten rules, like the culture of baseball, the evolution of it, we're still waiting for parts of it to evolve. Can I ask you, I mean, this is getting a little more serious, so sorry, I'm going to be the no fun person, but um, we, I, I, I wonder if you thought that there was some hope for any kind of culture shift in baseball last year when you d- did have some players and, okay, never mind. <laughs> I didn't mean to discourage you, but like, no, oh, wait, wait, so look, I'll just get this out. So was there any sense that things shifted? I mean, to be fair, they also, and, and, you know, I could talk about this for an hour, but they, they did move the all-star game this year, which was pretty interesting. Um, so, I mean, is there any difference post 2020 and everything that went on? Do you think? No. Um, it was theater, right? It was, it was theater. Like, don't, don't talk about us. Don't look at us. <laughs> Don't look at the man behind the curtain. Like, that's kind of how it was. Like, just look, look at it like this. So remember, there was BLM on the mound. But then, like, five seconds later, it was progressive insurance. Like, shout out to Flo. But, like, what is Flo really about? You know, like, it was, it, to me, I feel like everything that they've done, at least outwardly, has been a... We don't want to be talked about. We don't want bad PR. We want to sort of softly satisfy this contingent of people while getting money from this contingent of people. You know what I'm saying? Like, ultimately, it is a business and everything comes down to who's giving us money, right? Where are we getting the money from? So I just felt like a lot of that stuff was performative. It was for show. None of it really, I mean, the Nationals are having a DEA night. Like, so how do you go from Black Lives Matter to support the police? Like, this, it doesn't, 
like we have conflicting things here. Like the the messaging doesn't work. And as a black fan, and I just I can't I can't get with it. I can't take it seriously. Moving the game, they had to do that, right? Like you either move the game or you are talked about in such a terrible way, right? Because Henry Aaron is an icon to all of us. So to disrespect that man would have been real, real bad, right? But ultimately, I think any headline from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s about MLB and their race problem could be applied today. It could still be applied today. 2021, I still go to games and some random man is asking me, why are my hoops so big? I don't know, dude, because I just wanted them to be. I won't tell you what I actually say because it's inappropriate. But like, <laughs> um, I definitely refer to the man as small if that gives you any indication. So, but I mean, so is there, I don't know. I mean, this is a, this is a chicken and egg thing that there are some fewer black baseball players now um, that it, you're, you know, part of that is the reason why you have less and less black fans. But I also wonder about the eight or 9%. And there were a few players last year who were pretty outspoken and were out there. I don't know what the hell they're doing this year. I, I haven't heard about anything quite honestly, but I, it is, does seem like it's a, a bit of a cycle. I think some of it is, okay, so let's look at the Players Alliance. When the Players Alliance was announced, we had a lot of hope for it, right? Look at it now, right? MLB decided to put some money into it and that sort of stifled any sort of movement. You can't have social justice if the thing that you're social justicing against can buy in. So, but I mean, were the players bought off essentially then? I mean, is that like... I mean, I'm not saying the players were bought off, but it's very easy to quiet a message by throwing some money at it. It it works institutionally, right? I mean, it's like anything MLB becomes a part of, everything, regardless of what the intentions are, everything slows down. Everything becomes meetings. Everything becomes corporate. Everything then has to be vetted through rights holders and sponsors and everything else. And anything that could be even remotely transgressive stops. And so, you know, are they bought off? No, they don't have to be. Just MLB's presence in anything turns it pro-MLB in a way that protects the league and protects the image from controversy. Like you mentioned, like they mostly want to avoid controversy, conflict, and headlines that they're not in control of. And now that they're part of the Players Alliance, they're partially in control. And MLB has is such a hegemon in the universe of baseball in a way that is unprecedented in, in, in baseball history. So 50 years ago, 70 years ago, 90 years ago, even 30 years ago, we could talk about baseball plural, like the baseballs, you know, outsider baseball, Negro League baseball, whatever it was. Now MLB can reach into baseball at any level, something uh, – you know, the Players Tribune, but, but but anywhere, right? Minor league baseball, there's no independent minor leagues to speak of. College baseball is closer to, to the major leagues, right? Baseball, I mean, this, this you know, MLB, I am glad that they are recognizing Negro League baseball as as just as legitimate. You know, the Homestead Grays were a better team than the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1935, right? Like, let's, let's recognize that. But now those are major league statistics. That's something that MLB owns in, 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 a, in a more profound way. And that makes it even harder because there's nowhere else to go. They absorb everything. Um, I said on another podcast, I relate MLB to Thanos in that they just sort of snapped and everything disappeared, right? Like as soon as they find their way into it, as soon as they find their interest, 
so to speak, it's gone. Look at the Negro Leagues. Oh, we can make money by letting these Black folks and these you know, Latino players join us. Boom, dead, right? The minor leagues, boom, dead. Like, it's an interesting parallel if you think about it. Like, anything they touch becomes gold for them, but brass for the rest of us. Like, it's just useless. And this is even becoming global now, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, increasingly, for example, not, not so much Japan, because it's a huge and powerful country, but Korea and Taiwan, baseball there which is a long part of those countries and their culture and history is now not entirely, but increasingly, you know, framed by MLB with the best players coming over here soon. They'll, you know, and, and certainly international world baseball classic is not run by the international Olympic, you know, the equivalent of the international baseball association. It's run by MLB. So it's, it's a global phenomenon also. Their ultimate goal seems to be, I mean, they've already positioned themselves as the premier league, right? In the world. And so ultimately it's like, how can we make everything related to this sport benefit us? How can we make everything related to this sport funnel into our interest? And it, they're succeeding. Um, I said that I thought there should be a new Negro League, Negro Leagues 5.0 whatever. Uh, Because if you don't, you're going to just continue to see diversity in the league shift a different direction. Because that's what people like to say. It's very diverse. Internationally speaking, it is. It absolutely is. But on a more localized level, it's not. It's really not. Yeah. And the the other interesting thing about what you just said, Shakia, was that when we look at Black players in MLB over the last two decades, particularly, they're they're Afro Latinos. You know, the majority of them are coming from the Caribbean. They're coming from the DR, from Venezuela. The uh, the factors from Cuba. Um, you know, from some from Puerto Rico. But it, it's it's kind of mind blowing. And you know, the many instances which MLB says, "But look, we have RBI." You know, as a program. And I'm like, well, how many RBI kids do you see in MLB right now? Many of us who follow the game, who study the game, who 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 are writing on the game probably can't name five guys who came successfully from the RBI program into MLB. And that's about investment of real dollars in to the black baseball infrastructure in the United States. Um, Dave Winfield years ago had said, you know, MLB and the Players Association should sponsor baseball scholarships for African-American players so they have more opportunity to play at that level in colleges and become part of that pipeline so that a Mookie Betts is not the exception to the rule of coming out of college into MLB, but that they're part of that pipeline. Um, you know, I'm teaching at University of Illinois. There's many years where there's not a single African-American player on this. I've been here 20 years of late. We've had a couple of African-American players who have been on the baseball team here at the U of I, but how are they getting the opportunities? The pipeline is so different. I think one thing you touched on is really important is the lack of scholarships. Cause even if you look at historically black colleges and universities, their baseball teams are white, right? So there's that scholarships aren't there. And a lot of black kids who can play baseball come from middle-class families. So once you start excluding the, you know, those with less, you already are cutting off a ton of black people right there. We are not 
the wealthy, you know, uh, group in the country. So school is important. Education is important. Geography is important. If you look at where most African-American players in Major League Baseball come from, they're from the Southeast. They're from like Alabama, Florida. So maybe invest in these, you know, in the Southeast region, find these guys and start with their kids. Because what happens is once you reach a certain age, your parents are like, you got to pick one or the other because we're not paying for both. And football, Ball offers a lot more of an opportunity and it doesn't keep you down until you're 27 years old. Like you have, for example, Justin Fields, you know, go bears, go bucks. Um, he, he's 21 straight out of college already in the NFL. When you get drafted in MLB, you never know if you're ever going to get called up. Right. And that's kind of another problem. We only have this one quote, professional way to go. Whereas if you create more avenues where we, you know, have maybe a semi-pro situation, you know, like the NBA G League, right? Like there has to be another way. There cannot just be one way to do a thing. And MLB has sort of stifled that. And that's affected numbers tremendously. And then when you have so many traditions that are, you know, steeped in preserving whiteness, that also is a turnoff. Right. Like you not not many guys who are my age. Right. Are like, yeah, I'm going to go watch a baseball game. It's just not happening. Like it's not. If I'm going to a baseball game, I'm going either by myself or someone else who is just a giant nerd. There is no room to go either way. There's no interest. They don't have black people involved in this. You could tell black people make no decisions at MLB. None. Well, I mean, that's another piece of this. So I was just I was just thinking to myself. Didn't Ken Griffey get hired to do something? Does anybody know? I think he's like the queen. You know what I mean? Like, kind of like Magic Johnson is for the Dodgers. He's like a like just the visible face, right? Like, come kick it with us. Ken Griffey once did. You know, like, that's kind of how it looks. Like, obviously, no shade or disrespect to my favorite baseball player on the planet, but... They're not, if you're going to utilize Griffey, you're not doing a good job of it. Like just trotting him out at the all-star game where maybe five black people are watching, not really the way to do it. I'd like to see CC Sabathia. Uh, I don't think they, they don't want any part of him probably. CC Sabathia would cuss some people out. Have you ever heard him speak? Oh yeah. Like, I'd listen to his podcast, man. CC's podcast, by the way, anybody out there listening who is wants a podcast that is the polar opposite of this one, go listen to CC Sabathia's because it is um, less than genteel, but it's it's great. There's this video clip of CC and TA, right? Where they're talking about the field of dreams. We've all probably seen this clip a million times. And CC's like, Black people don't watch Field of Dreams, but he definitely threw some, you know, some spice <laughs> in there. And that just sticks with me. Like, if MLB decided to partner with CeCe, like, that he couldn't be on live television. One of you guys should write a piece, either you or Craig, about a, a day with Ken, with uh, uh, CeCe as, as the uh, person working at MLB. Walk us through it. <laughs> that would be a great exercise. I'm going to um, betray my Bay Area connection here, but I'm, I'm curious about, I'm not sure that uh, MLB's treatment of the second greatest living African-American player has been positive. 
and has helped bring African Americans closer to baseball. And I am thinking specifically of Bud Selig's kind of treatment of when Barry Bonds broke the record uh, that had belonged to Henry Aaron, who of course was African American also, and and how Selig, you know, just basically said, I don't recognize this record, which is both, look, he's an old dude, it's generational, but the racial politics are much more complicated than that. There. It's also a big factor in that, and people don't talk about it as much as they did 10, 15 years ago or whenever, is Bud Selig and Henry Aaron were very, very, very close friends. And so he was he was personally pissed in ways that even Aaron wasn't, so it was weird. Right, and, and whereas Willie Mays is, is fine with it. And, and here is a contemporary, you know, young at that time, African-American superstar who instead, who, who has, who Major League Baseball, they made him the face of the steroid scandal because he was kind of the grumpy African-American dude. That, forgetting that he hit more home runs off of pitchers who were taking steroids than anyone in the history of the game. And, and by just pushing him away, right now, Barry Bonds is more interested in cycling than baseball. And that can't be a positive sign. I have a lot of personal conflict with Barry. First of all, I like Barry. But, you know, we all know about Barry's personal life, right? Like, he was an abuser. And I wish that was the problem people had with him. You know what I'm saying? Like, if that was the problem people had with him, I'd be like, okay. But it's like you said, it's not. It's absolutely racially motivated. I went to... Barry Bonds number retirement uh, with the Giants in 2017. And, you know, um, his godfather, Willie Mays, spoke. I've actually, I had never heard Willie speak before that day because he's pretty much, you know, quiet. And he made this impassioned plea, put him in the hall. And coming from Willie, that should have been everywhere. Should have been everywhere. But Major League Baseball likes to prop up historic Black icons in this way that actually isn't respectful. It's like, we liked you then, we'll hold you up because we let you play with us. We let you join our league, but that's kind of where it ends. If they actually respected him, they would listen to his opinion. You know, um, Barry is, he did a Instagram live chat with Dom Smith that was incredible. It was incredible. Not enough people watched it, but I can tell you black people were watching it. Like you are right. He is an entry point, but no one wants to admit that. Sometimes Barry was right. Like he was a little surly, but maybe he had reason to. You know, maybe the writers were actually, you know, wrong to him. And maybe they were wrong for two generations, right? Think of what his father went through. Mm-hmm. Right? The other point I would make about Willie Mays is that, you know, Major League Baseball banned Willie Mays for life for shaking hands in front of a casino. Right? Go to a ballpark today. See how many uh, casino advertisements there are. Willie Mays is, I mean, he's Willie Mays, right? And I'm a San Francisco guy. But he is, a, he is as well as being, you know, Willie Mays, he's a complicated guy. And baseball doesn't want to focus on the complicated side of him, the side of him that, that, that leads him to go out and say that and put Barry Bonds in the hall, right? He has very complicated and, and deep and nuanced memories of his very long career playing in Major League Baseball. And, and, and as much as I could watch him making that catch in the 1950, sorry, you're from Cleveland, in that 54 World Series every day, you know, there's more to him than that. I think you can't be complicated and a person of color, right? Like, it is very easy to see the humanity in someone who is white. 
Like, for example, look at how many people were looking at Kurt Schilling. Like, hey, he said all these really violent things about me, like about actual writers, but he gets my vote because I can look past that. I can look past him as a person and see him as a player. But when you're in of color, as I like to say, like you don't get that grace. You don't get that grace. You have to toe the line. You have to be a way. Like I joke all the time that there is no public me and private me. I just am who I am. You either like it or you don't. But when you're a professional baseball player, you don't you don't get that kind of people don't care. You have to perform your blackness a certain way. You have to be Latinx in public a certain way. Yeah, that's a that's a powerful point because what I would call there's two individuals who I think should totally be in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but the rules of eligibility, how the voters, Buck O'Neill and Minnie Minoso should both be in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but our rules mean that oh you didn't play in MLB long enough. Let's not, let's forget the whole segregation thing, you know, because that happened, but that's that's history. And for Buck O'Neill, it's like, well, you can only really be come in as a player or a manager executive. You can't be this all-encompassing great player, great manager, the spokesperson that brought the consciousness of white MLB fandom back to the Negro League's history. That doesn't get you in the Hall of Fame. And it's who put those rules in? I would put Felipe Alou in that category as well. Great manager, great player, not quite great enough on either, and hugely important to the history of the game. And and this, I, I'll never forget, um, the day we had the vote for um, the Special Negro League uh, vote in Tampa, I did a, a live hit with the ESPN affiliate in, in Mexico City, and they were like just stunned. Like, how do you all not put Minnie Minoso in the Hall of Fame? And they were coming with fire at me. And I'm trying to reply to them in Spanish. And I'm like, but I agree with you. They're wrong. I've met Minnie's son recently. Charlie. Yeah. And Charlie is incredible. Very incredible. He has so many amazing stories about his dad. And when people ask him about his dad, he's like, well, he was my dad. He wasn't a baseball player at home. He, he was just my dad. And I think about that a lot, right? Like, he was just my dad at home. And... That's that's the thing. The person gets lost because baseball people are stat heads. Baseball people are, I need to be able to quantify how great you were. It cannot be this abstract thing. But another part of that is look at the Baseball Writers Association. How many of them look like me? That's important, right? You have this very stringent rule of you got to have written for this amount of time, for these specific types of publications, the rules have to start to change. They have to move forward. Almost no one writes for a newspaper anymore. Everyone writes for something online, right? And there even should be maybe a modification, like, hey, we need to get more women. We need to get more people of color. So this will be a different criteria. I know people don't want to hear that, like the affirmative action, whatever. But the only way you start moving things toward the middle is you have to change these archaic rules. You have to start inviting other people in. I've been writing for five years, right? I've 
I've won awards, you know, and the whole nine. I'll probably never get invited to be a member of this organization unless I start writing for a newspaper. And I don't plan to do that. So so I'll never get in. And I think someone like me, not necessarily me specifically, but also me specifically, would be an important voice. You know, you have like Sabre is really cool, but it's also extremely white. So there's no impact there. You, you know, there's the women of Sabre. They're also extremely white. Like there has to be entry points for those of us who have been excluded. That's the only way you'll start to even shift any of these things. So, you know, people are doing this whole like, yeah, we'll we'll give scholarships to, you know, people of color to attend these conferences. But what are you doing beyond the scholarship? How are you bringing us to the table? Because you got to burn it all down. That's all you can do. And of course, at the same time, they're not doing that. MLB and the kind of framework around it is bemoaning that it's losing its fan base, right? Well, if you're doing nothing to bring in women and, and, and girls when they're young, and if you're doing nothing to bring in people of color in a really meaningful way, well, then you're pushing away 60, 70% of the population. What do you expect? Well, I, I really don't understand. Maybe you guys do better what the strategy is to grow the fan base, as they are talking about. If all they do is take steps to protect their existing fan base, as we were talking about with the rules, as we're talking about with Hall of Fame stuff, all they try and do is shield the existing fan base, which is white, old, and probably, you know, sorry, going to die off, including, you know, me. I, I would, I would argue that MLB, they'll never admit it, but they're not interested in growing the fan base because they found a way they think to where they don't have to. For years, they have fought the idea. They, they've tried to grow it and they've not found a way to do it. Uh, but with certainly with the gambling initiative, with how heavily it has leaned into gambling partnerships, they have found a way to grow revenue without growing the fan base. And if you look at the trajectory of boxing and horse racing, both of which, along with baseball in the early 20th century, were universally popular sports by like common sports fans, not just people who are really into them. Uh, and then when gambling became the biggest part of all of that, they are now very, very niche sports as far as uh, the number of people who consider themselves fans, but they are far more lucrative because it is all tied up in gambling and things of that nature. I think baseball is going in that direction. They don't want to admit it. No one, not that many people have really appreciated it, but they are very, very happy with making 10 times the money off of a degenerate gambler than having 10 regular fans. Well, and also, if you, as you've talked about and written about, Craig, they, they've become real estate developers as much as anything else. And so they're getting so much money from that and from, you know, the states and cities and so on. If it's about the bottom line, you know. The, the overall arc is not we're going to grow and reach the, the largest number of people. It's we're going to get the, the biggest amount of revenue. And those things aren't necessarily the same thing. Is that, I mean, that that is, can that only go in one direction at this point? Are we, I mean, how... I, I feel like it is. How do, does anyone feel like they're reaching out to fans in a real way to, to create new fans in the game? Everything seems to be hostile to new fans. I think diversity and inclusion is a scam. Okay. Like there's no actual inclusion and that's where they are stopping. We are diversifying. We are not including. Right. And that's, that's where the outreach ends. Like we're talking about it. We're not actually including you. And you know, the gambling is going to exclude a ton of people. I personally don't like to risk money on anything. So you already lost me. Like, I'm not risking my money for anything. So you got me and there's tons more people like me. Um, and then you also facilitate 
a really bad problem. We don't really talk about how bad gambling affects people. It's an it can be addicting. And I guarantee you, they're not going to have ways. They're going to post an 800 number. If you have a problem, call this number. But otherwise, give us your money. Like, Don't mm-hmm. smoke these rich tobacco flavor Chesterfields. You were talking about um, that they're in the Baseball Writers Association and so on. There are not people that look like you. And as someone who increasingly is questioning my decision to um, be working in the field of democracy and voting rights and wishes that I had pursued a career um, in baseball in some form, I I wonder what it's like. Um, What is it like to be an African-American woman who's also a baseball writer? And there's so, are there any? I mean, there are very few, right? When I started, Claire Smith was the only one. And now there there are a few of us uh, Kennedy Landry, for example, she uh, covers the Rangers for MLB. Uh, but a lot of you know the women, the black women who are coming up now, they're younger. They're younger, so they're not necessarily as jaded <laughs> or as cynical. Um, for me, I would say this: it's not easy. No one wants to be the first or the second of anything, and no one talks about that, right? So I'm basically the Larry Doby of this thing. And <laughs> go try. Uh, but like, um, it sucks more than it is fun, right? So I'll use when I won the Sabre Award, right? First Black woman ever to win this award. How is that possible in 2021? How is that possible? How has no one looked at the ranks? No one looked at the list and been like, damn, you know who's missing? The sisters are missing, you know, like, because they do not care. It is not a priority. So it's difficult in that aspect. It's also very hard when I feel like, you know, social media is big. You're either on Twitter or you're not. And if you're not, people probably don't read you and don't know you unless you've been around for a super long time. And so for, I don't, admittedly, I don't really get a lot of hate in my you know, mentions anymore, mostly because I used to just curse people straight out. Like, I, who's going to fire me? You know, like, but it's bad. It sucks. I will be the first to tell you it's not fun. It's awful. I have no sisterhood in this because, you know, solidarity is for white women. So nobody really like is like there, right? They're cool, but they're not there. Everyone is doing this. I'm an ally. But are you? Are you going to bat? Are you turning down jobs because these places are only hiring people who look like you? You're not. If you're not willing to make any kind of sacrifice, you you don't have my back. You publicly want people to know that you, you know, respect me or you think I'm cool or you think I'm funny or whatever. But otherwise, there is no solidarity for me in this. Um, the people who have looked out for me the most have been Black men, just being honest, and Latino men, because they see the significance more than anyone else. But it's, it's I'm on an island, you know? Um, I'm grateful for folks like Kennedy, who I can like, you know, DM or whatever. And then there's some Black women fans have started to pop up on my timeline that didn't even exist five years ago. And they see me as someone who they relate to, someone who is important, but we need everyone else to start seeing that too. Like, 
I don't like to talk about myself, so this is really weird. But like, there's a value in my presence that still hasn't been fully acknowledged yet. And maybe it won't until I'm gone. You know, maybe 50 years from now, someone would be like, you know what? That black girl with the dreadlocks, she was talking that good shit. We liked her, you know? But until it gets to that point, I don't know that I can say that, like, I'm having a good time. Or, you know, I I more see the importance in what I'm doing, and that's what keeps me going. Like, Black players reach out to me. We got to protect you. We got to look out for you. That's what keeps me going. Otherwise, I would have dipped a long time ago. I think about it frequently, to be quite frank. Like, I don't have to do this. I could do something else. I don't have to be abused this way. That's powerful. And and as you were saying that, I think about how long Claire Smith worked in kind of obscurity, covering one of the main teams in all of baseball, <laughs> right? Covering the Yankees for the Hartford Current. And really, it's been the last six to seven years where her name was getting recognized and, and, and people paying homage and actually recognizing, my goodness, she had been at this game where in 2021, over 40 years. She's an icon. She's an icon. She made the way for all women to cover baseball. She was first, period. And I don't think she gets her flowers I tried to, you know, at the Sabre Women's Conference last year. I wrote something about her. She personally is a, she's a hero to me. Like, you know, I love Angela Davis and I love Claire Smith. And I know that they're on two different ends of the spectrum, but like, that's where I am with it. Like, I think, you know, Black people are the purveyors of cool, right? Nobody wants to admit it, but like, we are, guarantee you. Your music is influenced, whatever, the way you dress is influenced, whatever, whatever, right? Why can't it be that way in baseball? Why can't, I mean, look at MLB's Twitter accounts. They all cosplay black slang all the time, right? But if I talk like that, I'm uneducated. I don't know what I'm talking about. That's kind of, I feel like the contradiction that I have to exist in, like, if you say what I say, it's cool. If I say what I say, it's too black. Um, and, you know, I said this a few times, but nobody really wants to talk about racism. But if we don't, how do we how do we deal with it? Like, I don't want to spend every day of my life being the person talking about racism. No, but I'm going to let you know that it's there. You know, um, it's just, I don't know. I feel like I'm in a weird spot with this whole thing. I'm either going to make an impact or I'm going to die trying. That's kind of <laughs> That's where I am with it. You're going to hear me or I'm going to scream at you one way or the other. Let's yeah, go. I mean, and again, I, what you were saying before and what Lincoln brought up about Willie Mays and like just a different space that what we'll call the black elder statesmen of baseball occupy. They literally like Frank Robinson got a role and it was about discipline, discipline in the player. That's what MLB gave Frank Robinson. Michael Hill now. I was just going to say that too. Michael Hill is now doing it and not doing a good job, Michael Hill, if you're listening. Nope. <laughs> I think I think Rob Manfred will beg to disagree with you. Oh, of course. Michael Rob Manfred would love to be given a pat on the back for all the African-Americans that he has elevated in the game. So I have a thing, right? I'm going to say this. It's probably controversial. But like, if you bring in only Black people who also are going to uphold whiteness, what is the point? 
what is the point? And that's no shade to those Black people because I recognize preserving your job and your sanity are things. And we all assimilate in ways to save ourselves. But for advancement of the league that is moving at glacial pace, like you absolutely have to start getting some people who are going to buck the system. You can't be surrounded by yes men and women. And you have to have people who are going to say, no, that's a bad idea. No, that's stupid. Like something. Sometimes I look at ideas that are floated across as events for Major League Baseball, and I'm like, nobody in the room said no. Not a single person was like, wait, let's talk about this. And I'm going to go back to DEA night as an example. Like, no person was like, wait, we gentrified a neighborhood in one of the blackest cities in America. Washington, D.C. was Chocolate City. I think you're all old enough to remember when people called D.C. Chocolate City. And so you decide there was a shooting outside that ballpark. How long ago? A month? Month and a half? So you have DEA night? <laughs> like, it's it's the wildest thing to me. Like, it just... Just lost. You know, Ice Night is coming next, and they'll probably have Vanilla Ice out there to uh, to, to sing for it. Now, it's it's such like you, to your point though. It's a, it's a very small group of people. I think people see how big of a footprint Major League Baseball has, or how big of a brand the Washington Nationals have, or any other team. And at any of these institutions, it's like four people making de- decisions, really, if that. And and to go back to your point about inclusion. The cost of inclusion is a billion dollars, right? Because the real decision makers are the owners at whose pleasure Rob Manford or whoever succeeds him serve. And a billion dollars is a lot of money. Not a lot of people have it, right? And and people who do tend to surround themselves with people like them. And and as the as the hegemon grows, the the power center shrinks. So so it's more and more concentrated baseball power in the non on the field sense of the word in smaller number in the hands of a smaller number of people. So does that mean that the, I mean, maybe there are many ways out of this that I'm not thinking of, but for somehow there to be more black owners or more owners of color of which there's one. Well, that's one, that's one way out. Another way out is to break the hegemon. And this goes to something Shaquille was saying earlier, right? You're talking about a Negro league 5.0, right? But I, I would, I think that's a great idea, but also to, I mean, there was a time when, I mean, we all know that at the end of the day that, you know, your typical National League team could beat your typical PCL team or your typical Negro League team in 1932 or something. But we also know that there were many players and teams in those leagues that could compete with, with the American and National League teams. But most importantly, we know that there were fans in the case of the Negro Leagues, primarily African-American fans, in the case of the PCL, primarily West Coast fans, for whom that was important. Those games, those teams were important. It wasn't, it wasn't subsidiary or to to major league baseball, and there were semi pro leagues, and there were you know high school and college teams and town teams that really mattered, not just as a funnel to the major leagues. And that hegemony means that it's easier to concentrate power because you can speak of I mean in 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 Russian in the Russian language the word power takes the definitive article, so you say the power, right? And the thing about th- once you say the power, it's harder to divide. We say power can be divided. The power cannot, right? So um, I'm not going to speak in Russian because my Russian is terrible. But in the major leagues, the power is in small small number of people's hands. But if you break down the hegemony, then power into make decisions about baseball and how ordinary fans 
experience baseball can be spread out. How does that happen? Craig, is that, does that have anything to do with the antitrust exemption or is that? You know, it might even be superfluous at this point. The antitrust exemption will, will deal with someone in major league baseball uh, trying to buck the system from within a, a rogue owner who we won't let in because we have an antitrust exemption or a, a rogue movement of a team that might challenge authority because of the antitrust exemption. I think the one baseball idea like we've been talking about with major league baseball, basically becoming the hegemon of all of baseball is a bigger factor. Uh, if you tried an upstart league or if you tried anything to sort of compete against it, there's just no oxygen there. There's no space. There's, you're not going to get balls delivered from Rawlings because they're owned by Major League Baseball. I mean, it's it's really deep now. And I just don't even think the antitrust exemption enters into it anymore, at least at that level. I think that's right. And and that is that is the challenge, right? And and but but if we're thinking in terms because because according to, to Craig, who is the kind of who, who pays more attention to this certainly than I do, the alternative is that baseball goes the way of horse racing, which to me is not a very uh, not, not a very exciting option. I think MLB wants to own baseball. I have this this argument a lot uh, on on the Bird app, and it's like uh, when people say baseball, they're referring to MLB, and I try to push them the other way. Like when you're referring to MLB, say MLB. When you're referring to Little B baseball, say baseball. Like. I think we can't let them own it. As much as they try to own it, we can't allow that to happen. I don't know what we can do other than to use our language, but I think that's important. They do not own baseball itself. Yeah, and like I totally agree with you because one of the things that has frustrated me after MLB recognized that the Negro Leagues were also major league was the move by some folks in terms of the stats to like say these are now MLB records and I'm like stop no the Negro Leagues had to do so much work to do their records to get the players to like MLB doesn't get to just incorporate that 70 years after the fact and now own it you know that's to me it's a slap in the historical face of Alex Bompas, Gus Greenlee, Rube Foster, you know, the the every individual, Effa Manley, like who was literally when they want it in, they want to be included, MLB just said H E L L no. Y'all don't get to be part of the decision making center, the power. We got the power, and yet we're not sharing it. And that was the story of MLB's integration pursuit we got the power we're going to run integration the way we like it 